Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by our friends at LMNT Element. So we just went on a big family trip to Norway and Germany where we did a ton of hiking. That would describe it as a hiking vacation. It was a hiking vacation. Like we hiked like eight out of the 10 days we were gone. Ask our 15 year old. Yeah. And one of the things we really relied on to survive these huge hikes, and I'm talking like we hiked between 10 and 14 miles a day, was Element. And our kids did as well. Yeah. You know, it's easy. These packets are easy to pack. And then, you know, you're not worried about sugar. You're not worried about carbohydrate, we could get, we, we made sandwiches and things on the road, but having that nutrition, hydration part separated was great. And uh, I mean, what a difference. I mean, I am a sweater, I'm a spitzer. And also, you know, we came into it being totally jet lagged and probably a little bit dehydrated. So to just hit the ground doing these huge hikes and know that we could just be replenishing ourselves with element was really clutch. Not to mention a little bit of Nordic sauna that happened and you got to replace those electrolytes after the sauna. So as you guys all know, we literally drink Element every day. Right now, if you order through our link, you get a free sample pack with all of Element's flavors. Go to drinkelement.com slash TRS. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Vitruvian. Vitruvian was an interesting thing that came. I saw it on the internet. I saw some of my athlete friends using it. And imagine a force plate that has a couple cables and traditionally, when I see those things, I'm like, it's not serious because I can't put enough heavy load in it. And it just is kind of a one-trick pony. However, this thing kicked my butt. You can deadlift over 400 pounds on it. You can do eccentric only loading on it. And what I really liked about it, it's very quick to set up. Our kids loved it. Yeah. And for my part, one of the things I loved about it is not only quick to set up, but it's also really small and really easy to store. So it's not some gigantic piece of gym equipment that takes I over our entire life. I tried to inside the garage for many, many weeks. <laughs> and you'd be like, hey, could you fold that up and put it next? And you do. You just flip it up and it slides away. Yeah. You know, a straight bar comes with it. You can put crazy handles on it. I sometimes leave it up. And one of the things that we discovered, George's boyfriend liked to get a pump on it. It has a pump setting. The pump plus blood flow restriction, the most ripping pump you've ever had. This thing is so cool. If you want to learn more about the Vitruvian, go to thereadystate.com slash Vitruvian. On this episode of the Ready State podcast, we are stoked to welcome Josh Apple. Josh is an emergency medicine physician and chief of emergency medicine at the Southern Arizona VA. He is a former Air Force pararescue specialist, a PJ, who deployed on the rescue recovery missions for Operation Red Wings, including lone survivor Marcus Luttrell and Lieutenant Michael Murphy. Working with the Murphy family, Josh founded the Memorial Day Murph tradition. Josh is a husband, father of three active girls, a teacher, mentor, and a wellness evangelist. I first met Josh officially when we went out to work with his pararescue squadron, who was really thinking about strength and conditioning for the first time. And then, you know, like two Cheerios and a big bowl of milk, boom, we found each other. Yeah, one of the things I loved about this conversation was hearing more about his creation of the Memorial Day Murph tradition. I mean, it, you know, the origin story of that, I'd actually forgotten that he was the one who really popularized it. And then obviously it's taken off and, you know, tens of thousands of people do it every Memorial Day. And it's a really cool tradition that all started with Josh. Josh, and we didn't talk about this, but Josh and I have been collaborating on like off the books projects for a long time. One of them 
was that we used an H-Wave sort of off-brand in the emergency room to treat snake bite wounds. Suddenly he was like, hey, what if we dilute this venom? I mean, Josh is cutting edge and all things. He's a tremendous, tremendous human being. We're thrilled to introduce you and the greater Ready State community to our amazing friend, Josh App. What is the good word, Josh? Welcome to the Ready State podcast. Good morning, you two. Fantastic, as usual. Happy to see you guys. Excited to talk to y'all. We're going to solve some problems. And I just want to give an an early shout out to your vintage San Francisco CrossFit right. t-shirt, which I think probably has real value now, given that it is vintage and no longer in production. Tens of dollars. Tens, it's worth tens, tens of dollars tens on eBay. Dollars on eBay. <laughs> Amazing. And it's probably the last of the boys Husky as well. So. <laughs> so we obviously have met before and know you well, but I'm going to go ahead and let you tell everyone listening to this sort of the backstory of how the Josh and the Starettes became connected as humans. Yeah. Well, I think it was recently after the uh, Becoming a Supple Leopard came out and Kelly was making the rounds and came out to Davis Monthan to talk to our pararescue team. I was the flight surgeon. I had been a PJ for 12 years under the old school system where when you got injured, they gave you a bottle of 800 Motrins, a bag of ice and said, come back in three days and, and get back to it. And Kelly came in and really kind of blew our mind. It was the first time we had ever learned. I think that was probably the first time I'd heard the word mobility. I always said stretching. And then it's funny because you get that that first taste of Kelly and you're like, is this guy completely crazy or have I been missing all of this? <laughs> you know, the whole you just come yeah, yeah. Thanks, and, and thanks, the guys. answer to that question is yes, Josh. Yes, of course. And so I can give you an 11 year, cause I think that was about 11 years ago. Wow. I can give you an 11 year testimonial uh, in search of becoming a supple leopard. It's in my daily routine. I can't say I've ever been pain-free in those 11 years, but <laughs> knowing how to, right, right, how to diagnose and how to treat myself was probably one of the best gifts I've ever got. So thank you, Kelly, for, for that. I certainly would not be where I am today without your guidance. So thanks for that. And well, everyone, Josh is actually memorialized in our 60 Minutes piece, believe it or not. Right. Oh, yeah. We went back out there. That's right. Yeah, that was cool. Well, you know, interesting, too, because you're a physician. And, you know, I think maybe uh, people think that physicians are all knowing about all things. That's true. And I find it so interesting that, you know, you were already a working and well-trained physician at that time. And you're like, wait, whoa, like, I just learned how to take care of my body in a way that I did not learn in medical school. Right. You know, when you say it's like the service manual for your body, it's such an appropriate statement and it fits and everybody should be able to take care of themselves, you know, on a basic level. And I think really that's where people are missing these days. And you don't have to be a physician to understand becoming a supple leopard, but it helps, <laughs> you know, and that's where I think you guys nailed it with the new book, right? Because it breaks it down and it's like anybody can follow it. I read it and I was just, I'm like, this is the secret sauce. This is how we get people doing this stuff. Josh, you were a user. You're a PJ, went to med school. And we'll talk about that funny intersection right on the border of med school, PJ, I think is interesting. Become senior flight surgeon, right? The, the man. Then you transition and sort of each one of these transitions is an order of magnitude. Now you're 
Tell us what you're doing now. And the reason this is relevant in this conversation, because you see the challenges being a on the pointy tip of the spear, the user and the person in charge of the system. So tell us sort of what you're doing now for work. And I think that'll set up the framework for some of this, the nuance I think that we could all benefit from. Yeah, so now I am the chief of emergency medicine at the Southern Arizona VA. About five years ago, I was presented an opportunity to run the emergency department at the VA. And this was about the time when the Phoenix VA was getting all the bad press, right? People were dying because they weren't able to get in to see the physicians at the VA. And, you know, in typical Josh fashion, I said, uh, you know, somebody should do something about that. And then this opportunity presented itself. And I said, well, I can complain about it or I can do something about it. And it's really given me an awesome opportunity to get involved and see, you know, what's going on at the VA and how it works. And I guess I should give the disclaimer that the guests on the Ready State podcast do not necessarily represent those of the <laughs> VA or the government in general. <laughs> <laughs> so I am no spokesperson. I am not a paid spokesperson for the VA, a guy that works there. But they really have done some great things over the last few years. Congress has helped. They've stepped in. They've passed some bills, the CARE Act, the PACT Act, that said, hey, if we can't get to see you within 30 days, you have the opportunity to go out into the community and get the care you need. And I thought that was fantastic, right? We should be competing for veterans business. You shouldn't have to go there because that's your only option. But what we found was that people were going to the community and the community was saying, hey, we can't see you for 90 days. And so patients were coming back to the VA. And so I've been a part of that. And it, it's been really interesting to watch and see how it's developing. And I think the VA has a great model. I think there's certainly still work that needs to be done. It's what uh, what's called a capitated system, maybe getting in the weeds here, but the VA is paid per person, not so much a fee-for-service model, which is great because then they're incentivized to create healthy people not just treat them when they become complex medical problems, right? So they're invested in making sure people are healthy. And so they've come out with some great programs, the whole health program, there's dietary guidance, you know, there's all kinds of resources for veterans to try and keep them healthy. And I think they stumble a little bit because each VA is a little bit different, but on a national level, like the pieces are there that really could have a benefit. And then you know, the question is, how do you turn that into a, a national program? Because it is expensive. And then, you know, your limitations are, of course, that you run out of resources. You're catching veterans now, theoretically, after, potentially after service. You had that benefit of being in pararescue, which you should define for us in a second. But let's say that you're uh, in the Air Force, you're going around rescuing people and doing gnarly kind of heroic rescue then you're in charge of the care. When you look back, is there any sense of continuity of care? Because sometimes you can see things in leadership at the end of the tunnel that you could not have anticipated at the front of the tunnel. And is there a feedback mechanism for you to say, hey, let's really pay attention to this much earlier? Because I feel like sometimes, Jill and I work you know, with young athletes who are just lop off their arm and that grows back the next day. <laughs> And they can yeah. do whatever they want. And I'm like, you don't understand. We've seen the end of your athletic career. Yeah. And we think we could extend it and, and prevent a lot of harm. 
if you do these things. And it's we have that benefit of seeing both ends of the spectrum here. Have you had the same experience? No. What really happens is that, you know, you're active duty or you're involved, you're in the military, you're serving, and there's still, you know, I retired in 2020, so I've been out for a while, but I imagine it's still kind of a similar mindset is that, you know, you don't want to be broke. You want to keep going, especially with pararescue, you know, these high-speed career fields, you want to just keep going. And so you kind of bury things, which is probably a lot like, you know, the young athletes, right? You just drive on and then you get out and then you say, okay, now I need to start taking care of myself, which is what happened to me. Like I ignored it for so long and then I got out and I was like, okay, now it's time for me to start working on this stuff. And so I don't know how you square that circle with saying, hey, this is important to do now. Part of it is the fear of losing the ability to do your job. And I think we've made great strides in the military, pararescue and the- Air Force particularly. Right, the whole guardian angel weapon system. When I was going through, when I was a, a PJ or pararescue specialist, so for those that don't know, Air Force pararescue is the combat search and rescue component of uh, the Air Force. They were kind of born in World War II, but really kind of got their name in Vietnam when they would uh, rescue down pilots uh, going down the helicopter in the forest penetrator and have been involved with just about every high level rescue mission since, you know, Vietnam. So it's a high demand, high stress environment where people work. And when I went through, it was, you know, you get injured, you, you come off, even if you you know, you try and work through it, but if you can't, then you go see the flight surgeon who gives you a bottle of Motrin and a bag of ice and says, you know, come back in three weeks. And I think starting back when we met Kelly, this was kind of when we had the transition and pararescue became its own career field with some other battlefield airmen career field. And then it was designated its own weapon system. And with that weapon system, they created a maintenance program. Right. Somebody, I don't know who it was, but came up with the great line, you know, Guardian Angel is the only weapon system without maintenance program. Love it. And so with that came all of the funds and all of the training. And so now there's physical therapists, there's chiropractors, there's sports medicine physicians, all helping keep this weapon system up and running. Okay. So I have to ask as someone who doesn't totally understand all the military language, by weapon system, do you mean a bunch of humans? who are doing things and they themselves are the weapon system? Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I can understand why that's confusing. So most weapon systems are considered like aircraft or tanks, right? Like a piece of machinery that needs maintenance, right? You got all the maintenance crews that work on the jets and the tanks, but we got a designation for the guardian angel weapon system. And so we got the maintenance program to go along with it. That makes sense. That's so I, interesting. I think I don't know if I completely understood that that nuance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, I know. I mean, I understood what you were saying. What I'm saying is, it's really funny that that's how we finally wrapped our heads around, you know, understanding that this was a finite resource that we really are some of our most veteran, experienced, you know, PJs were not able to deploy and do their job. Well, right, because like it, it back would, hurts. It would go without saying that you would maintain the jet. 
right? <laughs> right. Yeah, but right. that it took a second to be like, wait a second, like we, we actually, actually have to maintain the humans in the same way. Throughout some of the, the, <laughs> the armed forces where people started assigning a number to the training. So Josh, and we, we've, we have $1.7 million invested in your training. And so that's why we should keep you in the field. So I love that we've basically made humans numbers and like systems. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and that w- then we're like, okay, now we can do the right thing for the yeah, right yeah, reason, exactly. which is great. Yeah. Okay, so I would love to just rewind a bit on your career. And I have 50 questions about your what you're currently doing at the VA and what you're seeing, which I'd like to get to in a little bit. But before we do that, I would like to just rewind a little bit. And thank you for the explanation about what a pararescue person does, because I'm not sure most people actually know that. But yeah. tell us a little bit about your career. Did you join the Air Force and then go to medical school? Was it the other way around? And then I would like to tee you up to give a detailed background of a particular famous rescue that you were involved in and tell everybody that story as well. Okay, sure. So you guys know me fairly well, but I tend to do things the hard way. <laughs> so I... uh decided late in my college career that I wanted to go to medical school and hadn't really failed at anything. So I was pretty confident that I would just apply and get into medical school. But it turns out you need things like good grades and high MCAT scores (laughs) and some life experience to to get into medical school. And so I didn't get in. And uh, I found myself kind of wandering and wondering what I was going to do with my life. And then I just kind of stumbled across this thing called pararescue. Wow. Hmm. And this was before the internet. This was in the early 90s. And uh, I got this brochure that had a picture of this guy in this maroon beret and, you know, looking all tough. And it said, you know, skydiving and scuba diving and shooting guns and emergency medicine. And I was like, that sounds cool. Sign me up. And I'm like, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And so after... Josh, meet the pipeline. I know, right? (laughs) After uh, graduating from college pre-med, I enlisted in the Air Force, much to the uh, chagrins of my parents. That was an interesting conversation. (laughs) Because usually, you know, you go to college and then if you join the military, you become an officer, you know, kind of the frontline leaders. But I wanted to be in pararescue because they were like frontline guys. They were the guys doing the job. And And I like to make the distinction that it was in the early 90s. And so, you know, there was not a lot going on. You know, the world was fairly stable. And so admittedly, I went in and I joined Pararescue because I thought it would be cool and it would be a great experience. But then once I got into it, just like any of the special operations jobs, there's a selection which has about a 90% attrition rate. And they just basically torture you for 12 weeks to include a lot of water work, a lot of breath holding exercise, and just being learning to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations, right? Because it's expensive. It takes a lot of money to send somebody through the pararescue pipeline. And they want to make sure that you can handle yourself under pressure because you will be sent into some high stress situations. And through that, I learned and just really came to appreciate the sacrifice of others, the teamwork of others, and the things that people have done before me that I didn't really know about when I signed up, you know, to be this cool guy in a maroon beret on the cover of a pararescue poster. And so with that, I I think I matured into, you know, somebody that really enjoyed uh, serving others, right? So it was kind of a, probably my first foray into service. And it stuck with me and it's continued throughout my life, there's been a 
a backbone of, of service, which continues at the VA. Did you like the medicine part? Because it's, it's one thing to yeah. sort of, I mean, if I'm wrong, correct me here, but one of the things that happens out of pararescue is that you had so much advanced military medical training, like ER medicine, literally ER medicine. Isn't that part of the genesis of the whole you know, physician's assistant program that we realized we had people who weren't even doctors, but literally could prescribe, handle, you know, car accidents <laughs> that happened with yeah. airplanes and in wars. I mean, this is the first kind of big dose of medical training you had and, and you liked it. Right. Or you were so far into the pipeline that you could not like it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was part of what drew me to pararescue, right? Because it's combat search and rescue, whereas SEALs are more search and destroy. I really liked that aspect of it, of going in and helping people, you know, rescuing down pilots or whatever. And pararescue does a lot of civilian work as well. And so all of the right. the high-risk rescues in Alaska or high-angle rescues done in, in Arizona or anywhere long-distance out-to-sea rescues, pararescue is usually involved because they have the, the greatest capability. But underlying all of that is the medical treatment that you learn, you know, the medical skills that you have, because it doesn't do you any good if you get to somebody and then you can't treat them. So that was really what brought me to pararescue. All that other stuff was sounded fun, but it was the med the underlying medicine that drew me to it. And then did you, after you do the pararescue training, you go to medical school, but you're still in the Air Force. Is that how that worked out? Me personally? Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about me specifically, right? Because like I said, I, I tend to do things the hard way. So I did a stint of active duty and then decided that I I really wanted to be a doctor still. You know, it gave me five years to kind of reflect on on my life and what I wanted to do. And I was grateful for the experience in active duty, but realized that, you know, I still want to be a doctor. And so I had gained a, a little maturity and some focus. And so I got out of active duty and went to a reserve pararescue team and went back to school. I went to the University of Arizona. And then ultimately got into medical school at the University of Arizona. And that's where I went. Just pause here for a second. Your 21-year-old self planned to med school. Your 26-year-old self, who's been around the block once, actually has some skills. <laughs> How asymmetrical was your preparation to the other fellow students? They must have thought you were just an alien who already also knew how to work in a team and wasn't freaked out by blood and could handle not sleeping for days at a time. I mean, it must have been really a shock that you're like, wow, I think every doctor could really stand to do this before she became a, a physician. Yeah. I remember the first couple of weeks sitting in class, like looking around, just giggling to myself that they're teaching me to be a doctor. I was like, you know, because I, I had just such a an appreciation for the effort that it takes to get in. And and some of my classmates, you know, they're right out of college. They're these young kids. None of them, some of them probably haven't even seen blood before, right? They're just academically very smart and very driven and like stepwise. They're like high school, college, med school, residency. But I brought an experience and I brought a different mindset to it that I wouldn't trade. Like I tell people, you know, if I could go back in time and get into medical school or not get into medical school, I tell people like, not getting into medical school is probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Okay. You know, I have to tell you a quick story that I think will probably resonate you as being a slightly older graduate student. But before Kelly went to PT school, he had to take some units to just finish up some, you know, he had to finish up some undergraduate units in order to be able to actually go to PT school. And one of the classes he had to take was a speech class 
that he took at City College of San Francisco. And, you know, obviously Kelly is good at speech, as one can imagine. And at that time, he was like 27 years old and he gets into this class with actual 18-year-olds, which is even yeah. funnier now that we think we have an 18-year-old daughter. And he had to take this speech class and, you know, kids were like terrified of giving a two-minute speech. And, you know, people are so afraid of public speaking. And, you know, Kelly just had to like check this box. But that was like a really weird experience for him being sort of an adult student and having to go through this thing with, you know, a I bunch had, of children. I had that. <laughs> Yeah. Like organic chemistry class yeah. to, you know, and that woman's like, you, the girl, you live with a woman. <laughs> yeah. I and was then, like, okay. And then yeah. even in PT Kelly's school. Kelly's like, wow, I'm already a hundred years old. I think old. I was in PT school. People hadn't voted yet. So, you know. Yeah. We yeah, 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 yeah They're they going to do their first voting. Yeah. I was same boat. Two questions here. First of all, what is the craziest Thing you did in pararescue training that like a civilian person like me would be like, wow, that's crazy, number one. And then number mm -hmm. two, I do want to tee you up again to tell the story about Marcus, Marcus Luttrell. Kelly and I obviously know the entire thing start to finish and are consumers of all of it. But my guess is many of our listeners have no idea who Marcus Luttrell even is. Yeah. Okay. Craziest thing. I don't know if I can... Pick out a crazy thing. Like, are you guys like jumping off of that high dive that's like five times bigger than the Olympic high dive? Like, what are you doing that is insane? Because there has to be some things. That's funny that you mentioned that because that was more of a summer job than an actual pararescue training. I did that before pararescue. I was actually the high diver in a circus, a German circus, but that's probably for another podcast. What? Kelly just died. No, no, I know, I know that. You he knows knew that. that. Oh, yeah. Right. Dude, the depths of Josh, you guys. Josh is the guy who finally convinced me to start making my own kombucha. Like right. jo oh, yeah. Josh is a That's user true. We fighting, thank you. We thank fighting you for, that. for the users. Okay. We thank you for that. Okay. Wow. Okay. I mean, okay. forget about the pararescue class. Okay. German so, high diver. German. Yeah. <laughs> Let me go back to the pararescue thing. So we have, uh, or I don't know if they still do it, but hell night like they do where they really try and get people to question question their motivation and so it's a just 24 hours of torture but we did this thing called bobbing which i know you guys are probably familiar with but this is the pararescue version of it where you actually take scuba tanks the twin 80 scuba tanks that are filled with lead shot and you put those on your back and a 18 pound weight vest oh. and your fins and you swim or you walk backwards down to the deep end of the pool and then you bob, right? So you, you jump up, you swim up, you take a breath and then you sink back down. And then you have to take your fins off and you put them on your hands. So then you can push and you can pull down and break the surface. So I'm like five foot seven on a good day. So I'm really struggling. And, you know, with the fatigue and everything, I'm not getting to the surface. And so I miss a breath and then I'm like trying to stay calm, right? Because you're strapped to a bunch of weights and you're lacking oxygen. And so the second time I push up, I really push and I really pull and I almost, almost break the surface of the water. Oh, the glass ceiling. Right? <sighs> and so I'm looking down the line, you know, we're all on a line and I see people bailing out, like pulling off their safety strap, like just quitting. And I'm like, I am not quitting. And so I try it again. And so this is my third breath and I'm already fatigued and there is a, a pool light. This was in the middle of the night. And so there was like a pool light that I was looking at and I'm like, well, I know there's people watching me. And, and so 
I'm not going to quit. And so I just kind of sat down and, and looked at the light and literally like went to the light. Your peripheral vision when you become oxygen deprived starts to narrow. And it literally was like turning off the, an old fashioned TV, right? That it got smaller and then boop, and then, and I was out. And then the next thing I know, I'm getting slapped in the face on the side of the pool. Apple, Apple, you know where you are. I'm like, oh, I'm like, hoo-yah, Sergeant. Because <laughs> that's how you answer everybody. Hoo-yah, Sergeant. You know where you are? Yeah, hoo-yah, Sergeant. <laughs> you want to quit? No, negative, Sergeant. All right, get back in the pool. Hoo-yah, Sergeant. <laughs> I got back in the pool. And, oh and uh, luckily, I was able to get a breath. And then we ended the exercise. But that was always uh, one of my favorite stories. So you shallow water blackout, you get yeah. slapped awake, and then you're strapped back onto the heavyweights yeah. and put back in the pool. That's amazing. We we got... <laughs> we, so a couple of things. One is that you're only my second friend who's drowned in a pool during most oh, of the training, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and, and what I'll say is we were approached to do a TV show a minute ago, and they were like, hey, here's the premise. You can take all these world-class athletes, and then we're going to see if you can break them. And uh, we're going to take him to do these crazy things. And I was like, I don't think you understand how this works. There's no off button. I was like, yeah. in fact, the premise is that you're going to see injuries and people will die and drown. And I said, because at some point you're so tired or you're so willful that you're just, there's no mental off button. You just go until literally you can't go. And I'm like, have you ever seen the woman rolling through the finish line of a marathon, like, yeah, or right. the triathlon, where she's rolling and she can't walk and she's pooed herself and she's like, I'm going to finish. I'm like, you want a TV show of that? And they were like, oh, good point. <laughs> <Can't> <laughs> There's no off button. And there yeah, you go. Can't. Apparently there is an off button, but it's called your brain. And uh, that is a perfect tee up. The thing about it is if you just relax, like it was such a calming experience. Like there was no pan, like you get past kind of the hunger for air and the guppying and and you just kind of go with it right it, it's the <laughs> you know everyone's the co2, everyone's wants to, the co2 build that is up. definitely one way to look at it Julian, Josh. i'm trying to keep up with Juliet on the bike and i'm just in pain and what i think to myself is this is my life now and that's like, like this is just how it is and i'm i'm gonna yeah. just suffer and yeah and that must be the same thing like this is my life now i'm on the bottom of the pool this is josh i hope someone tells my mom i'm out <laughs> Bye. Come on, right? Josh out. Apple okay. out. Hey, Ready State listeners. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. This episode of the Ready State podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Momentus. We just went on vacation. You've heard us talk about the Juliet stack. That's what this is. When you go, you always bring single serve protein packs. Yep. Because grams. Grams. You love a sleep pack. Because yep. we find that our sleep, as we've gotten older, gets highly disrupted. And then you take collagen, a little collagen shot. Yeah, and just having all three of those things with me on all of my trips in single-serving, single-use packets is so awesome. I mean, in the old days, I literally used to be scooping protein powder in Ziploc bags. And I couldn't tell the difference between my collagen and my protein powder. And then I would just give up on any nighttime supplement because it was too complicated to pack like little pill pill packs. So, you know, having these three, three things on board every time I travel has really changed the game for me. And, you know, if you open my carry-on bag, it's like it explodes out with you know, collagen and sleep packs. And it's just so easy to pack in little pockets and bags every time I travel. And I feel so much better. Yeah, we did a lot of loading. And what was nice is putting that collagen shot in and then loading our feet. That was fantastic. Yeah, if you want to check it out, go to livemomentous.com slash TRS and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase.
This episode of the Ready State Podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Yeti. And what we want to talk to you about today is sort of our favorite summer Yeti product, and that is the Yonder Bottle. We just traveled, and we've been begging Yeti for a long time. To, can you please make us a light backpacking, shatterproof, great sort of poly bottle that isn't a metal bottle? Because I, if I don't have a lot of volume, I don't drink water. You don't drink any water. I don't drink any yet. water. Yeah. But if I, so this thing starts to become like five pounds of insulated steel, and I don't want to take that. Backpacking straight up in Norway with this liter and a half bottle was killer. Yeah, and I mean, it is made of 50% recycled plastic and is super easy and lightweight to travel with. And, you know, we've used it in outdoor pursuits like rafting and backpacking, but also just on everyday trips where you have to, you know, put an empty bottle in your backpack before you go through TSA. Like, this thing is awesome to travel yeah, with. Yeah, it's my favorite travel bottle for sure. I've been throwing it in my, in my kayak. I can clip it onto stuff. The Yonder solves a big problem for us. Yeah, huge fans of this. If you want to go and check out the Yonder bottle and maybe pick up one, go to thereadystate.com slash Yeti. So you end up going to med school and then you have a little break, I think, and you end up going back to, I think it's Afghanistan on a little yeah. break from med school. Is that right? Do I have that Summer right? vacation. Yeah, it is. And I should have never been there. So I started med school in August of 2001. And I loved being a PJ and I loved medicine. And so I was a reserve PJ when I got in, got into medical school. And I had this dilemma. I'm like, do I quit being a PJ and just focus on medical school or can I do both? And I decided that I was single at the time and I don't think I even owned a house plant. So I said, I'm going to stay in the reserves. I'm going to be a PJ and go to med school. I'm going to work my way through med school. And that was right at the end of my enlistment. So I re-enlisted September 9th, 2001. Wow. Yeah. What timing? Yeah. Isn't that great? I was like, what could go wrong? So that was a, a Sunday, I believe. And I was at my training, my military training. I raised my hand and swore my oath to the constitution. And then September 11th happened. And I would like everybody, right? Everybody that was old enough right now, it's been so long that people don't remember it, but people were angry. And I was like, let's go, let's do this. Right. And so I was ready to quit med school and go back and just be a full-time PJ. You know, I had a, a skill set that I anticipate was going to be needed uh, relatively shortly. And I'd been training for this for a long time and it was time to time to go to work. We ended up getting activated and sent to Turkey because at the time we were protecting the no-fly zone over Iraq. And, and so this was early on before Afghanistan had even kicked off and we got activated. And, and my teammates, right, and this really speaks to pararescue and the kind of the brotherhood that it creates. My teammates realized how hard I'd worked to get into med school. And they came to me at a team meeting and they're like, why don't you stay back? Stay in school, train up the other PJs and send them over and just stay in school. And I'll, I'll never forget that because that meant, you know, more deployments for them, you know, time away from their family. And that was, you know, their sacrifice for me. And that really struck a chord with me. And I didn't like that feeling where I felt like somebody else was picking up my slack. And so 2005, 
I was graduating from med school May 13th, and we got activated again, this time to Afghanistan in 2005. You know, it was going down pretty good there in, in Afghanistan. And I said, I graduate May 13th. I'm available May 15th because my folks were coming out to visit. And so <laughs> I volunteered to go to Afghanistan right after medical school. Again, as an enlisted PJ. And so I had a, a special name tag made up that said, Master Sergeant Josh Apple, MD, and it really confused people. <laughs> <laughs> and so I ended up in Afghanistan 2005 for my summer vacation between med school graduation and the beginning of my internship. And so I walked over to, I was in Kandahar and I walked over to the military hospital. And I said, hey, you know, I'm a doctor. Can I help out? And nobody checked any, like nobody, I guess they just took my word for it. <laughs> I saw my name tag. It said MD. And yeah, like, like, sure, it says come MD, in, right? it's good. <laughs> and so it was amazing because I really got, really the, the only experience that you can only get as a wartime physician, you know, some of the most brutal conditions that a physician can find themselves in. And that was really a good introduction to my military career, into my medical career. And so I did the rotation and I was packing up my stuff and like I had packed up all of my gear and we were ready to go. It was June 28th and I was supposed to start my internship the you know, first week of July. So cutting it a little close. So I'm packing up my all of my gear and you know kind of just pause for a second. Yeah. yeah sorry, sorry. Where is your internship and how is working as a physician in a war zone not an internship? You get no credit yeah. for that? Like that's just like people are like, oh look you have a little side hustle. That's cute. So my my internship was at the University of Arizona. And, you know, the intern serves two purposes. One is learning how to be a doctor. The other is doing all of the crappy scut work for all the other doctors in the hospital, right? It's kind of how you, you learn how to be a doctor is that kind of trial by fire. And so, yeah, I was getting the experience, but the hospital wasn't getting the indentured servitude that the intern provides. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like I said, I'm packing up my gear. My head is already back in Arizona and I'm thinking about my internship and, you know, picturing something somewhere between Scrubs and ER, those TV shows. When I get this call on the radio that, hey, we need every all rescue personnel to the command center. And I walk in and, and I can tell right away that something is gone horribly mm -hmm. wrong. You can just feel the tension in the air. And I got, we got briefed that a military helicopter had just been shot down. There were 16 people on board and we don't know the, the status of them and we need to go now. So I pulled all my gear out of the storage unit and got it on, got my head back in the game. And we flew up north to Bagram Air Force Base. We were briefed there that the 16 on board the helicopter were all presumed dead. They had been struck by a rocket pelt grenade, but that they had been searching for a four-man SEAL team that was still missing. And it was now our job to go find them. And uh, that was the first I had heard of Operation Red Wings. And that was the mission that Marcus Luttrell and Mike Murphy and, and his teammates were on. And so we searched and we searched and didn't find anything for a couple of days. And then on the 2nd of July, we got a note that was hand-delivered by a village elder to one of the Marine fire bases. And it was from one of the 
SEAL team members, Marcus Luttrell, that said he was alive and he was being cared for in this village, but that you know he needed medical attention and the Taliban were closing in. And so we launched on that mission and picked him up that night. And he, I won't go into all the details, but I was the team leader, the pararescue team leader on that mission. And we flew in to, you know, enemy territory and, and got him out. And then he told us, you know, the fate of the rest of his teammates and that they had all been killed. And he was, in fact, the lone survivor of that mission. But he told us where his teammates were located. And in the movie, they never mentioned this. One of the things I, I really didn't like about the movie. But on the 4th of July, we went back in. And that's when we recovered Michael Murphy and Danny Dietz. There was another teammate, Matt Axelson, who was recovered a few days later. But on the 4th of July, that was the mission where I really thought we were going to be killed. They knew we were coming. They knew where the bodies were. We had just snatched the lone survivor from under their noses. And that's when I really felt like we were, we were going to be shot down. I often thought about Pat Tillman and how you know that was kind of a tragic story. This was before we kind of knew what happened. But along that same lines that, you know, that Air Force PJ team, whatever, goes in and after rescuing Navy SEAL gets shot down and killed on the 4th of July. I thought it would have made a good movie, but I didn't want to star in that one. So just in case people haven't heard, this whole event was made into a movie starred by Mark Wahlberg called Lone Survivor which we actually just randomly rewatched with our kids because we had mentioned something about it to our kids. And maybe it was because we'd just spoken to you and knew we were going to podcast with you. But and Murphy just happened. Yeah. So yeah. we actually watched it with our kids because we were like, you need to know about this. But yeah, I mean, did you overall feel good about the way that story was told? I mean, I actually didn't. I think I did vaguely know about you guys going in after. But other than that sort of missing piece of the story, which is a pretty big missing piece. But how did you feel about the movie? I had mixed feelings about the movie. Peter Berg did a great job with the team stuff, with the SEAL team, and really that's the important part. So overall, I thought it was a great movie. It was a great depiction. All of the action scenes, all of the wounds that the teammates incurred were actually from the autopsy reports. So that was all really true to life. And Marcus was an on-scene advisor, and so he I th he literally threatened Peter Berg. He said, if you make my guys look stupid, I'll kill you. So that may have been some of the motivation. <laughs> fair enough. That's fair. Uh, yeah. The rescue portion, the part that depicts my role was, you know, a little cheesy, but it's not about me. It was about the team. And I, I think they did a great job with the team stuff. My biggest pet peeve is that if you watch the guy that plays me in the movie, walks out of the helicopter and he's got this big shiny carabiner on his sit harness like right in front of his uh junk you know and i'm like why would you put a big shiny object <laughs> you know where people are shooting at you to highlight that area <laughs> not something i would do yeah, also it's those little details super those... reasonable if you watch it again look for the big shiny carabiner and you're like why would you do that yeah, well, so to, I mean, hi to highlight your manhood, that's really what you know, <laughs> Obviously, we've been part of the CrossFit community basically since the be very beginning and know that the famous workout that is done by tens of thousands of people across the world. I saw a Murph world, badge at the airport yesterday. Yeah, is in honor of Mike Murphy, who died during that mission. Right. And, you know, tell us a little, you know, maybe for people who've never heard of it and what that is and what's that about and why people do it on Memorial Day and so forth. Yeah, so... 
when I started my internship, you know, I was excited that we had done the mission and glad that we got Marcus back. And, but it was just I, such I, like, a, honestly, how, what yeah. was, did you have any time to process that whole thing or literally yeah, you, you were get like on a plane and you're like, no, now I'm yeah. in my scrubs. Now I'm back. Yeah. You're like now yeah. in University of Arizona. Yeah. Just wow. jump like a good way to avoid things is jump into a 80 hour work medical internship, right? No real processing. So when I'm stressed and I tend to just dive in and do stuff. So it actually worked out okay for me until it didn't. And then I worked through it, but it seemed like the thing to do. But I remember just having, right, because all of his teammates were killed, plus 16 people on the helicopter were killed. And, I, you know, just it was such a sense of loss, you know, and it seemed like it was kind of for nothing. And that's when I started doing CrossFit. It was actually 2006 when I started doing CrossFit to kind of augment my jujitsu stuff and uh, really liked it. And then I was in Albany, New York at the time. And there was, you know, in 2006, 2007, there was maybe a handful of, of hero wads. And I remember looking up at the wall and seeing, seeing Murph. And I was like, I wonder if that's the same Murph that I recovered. And I did some research and sure enough it was. And so I told Jason Ackerman, who was the, the owner of CrossFit, uh, Albany CrossFit, I said, hey, we should do something on Memorial Day. And we did a hero wad workout. And I remember the shirt said, you know, our pain for their sacrifice. And I did Murph and other people did other, other hero wads. And it was awesome, right? Just the feeling like Memorial Day for me would always end up just being drunk and depressed. But, you know, this was, it felt like I did something, right? Like I actually put forth some effort and thought about, you know, not just Mike Murphy and those guys, but everybody that had paid the ultimate sacrifice and allowed us, you know, this day of remembrance and allowed us to have a barbecue and, and drink beer and, and not go to work. And so that really resonated with me. And I thought that this should be something that everybody does. And so the next year I had the entire box do Murph and it was awesome. Just the synergy, uh, the teamwork, it created the tribalism, you know, where everybody's pulling for each other. And it was awesome. And then we ended up moving back to Arizona after my residency. And, and I thought that it would be a good thing to have as a national fundraiser, or at least a, a national event. And that's when I reached out to Mike Murphy's dad, Dan. And I said, Hey, I got this idea of this Memorial Day event. It's called Memorial Day Murph. <laughs> and I remember talking to Dan Murphy and, and he's like, so you want to charge people to work out at their own gym and do Mike's workout. I was like, yes. He said, good luck with that, right? Because nobody was really doing that. Like there was a no. fight gone bad or barbells for boobs or something. But it was kind of a new paradigm with fundraisers where you do your own, you know, do it wherever. And that was kind of the start of it. And, and nothing other than a Facebook page and a directory of CrossFit boxes, right? It's kind of where it got its start and just took off. I think we had like 2,700 people the first year. And then the next year we had like 10,000. And Angie and I had just had twins. Well, she had just had twins, but we had newborn twins and a two-year-old and we're stuffing these t-shirts into the into envelopes uh, for days on end. And she said, we are not going to do this again. And so that's when we handed it off to the guys at Forged. And Mike, who was an ex-seal himself, was a teammate of Mike Murphy. So it just kind of blended 
well, and they have now taken over kind of the general fundraiser, but the Memorial Day Murph tradition has certainly expanded well beyond CrossFit. You know, people in police academies and fire academies and Boy Scouts and everywhere, you know, people are doing it all over. So it has been just amazing for me to watch and just an honor to be a part of it. So cool. I think, I don't think enough people know the whole story. I love that. Yeah. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's amazing. If we uh, shift gears here for like psycho-emotional gears, you are suddenly a physician. You're going through this traditional physicianship. You're still attached to this pararescue wing. Yep. What places do you start to realize maybe the guardian angels aren't quite on board yet as a fighting system? Are you able to come in and think differently about what you're doing because you have this different perspective? I mean, Paris has been around for a minute, as you say. How does that change what you do in your day job, knowing sort of that aspect of it? And how do you take what you're learning in your day job and change your pararescue experience? That's a multi-tiered question. Yep. <laughs> yeah. What was that middle part again? <laughs> well, just, you know, you're suddenly having this, you know, you, you've come through sort of looking at the care and feeding of people from a medical perspective. You know, for me, I remember the moment where I was like, hey, I'm just putting out fires and I'm wondering if there's something I can do to prevent fires. Yeah. Do you ever have that experience as a physician? Because that's really the difference. Like you, I can just not know anything about Juliet. Juliet comes into my table. I get Juliet sorted out of pain, less pain, functional again, kick her back out into the world. But then after I see Juliet 10 times, I'm like, huh, what's going on with Juliet? Yeah. You know, it's like, what? Is there something I can do to prevent this or, or change the system? Do you feel like there's any agency there or do you start to become aware of that? So this brings us back to when you and I met. Until we met, I had never thought about that. I was solely, as the flight surgeon, my job was to get folks back to their job, right? Mostly it's the paperwork and some recommendations on training and what to do. But until you and I crossed paths and you came out for that first seminar, there was no root cause analysis, right? It was all reactionary. It was all, you know, I got this, how do I get better, right? None of it was proactive. And I think we're having that same revelation with healthcare in general now, yeah. right? Healthcare now is so reactionary, but how do we put out the fires? Or how do we prevent the fires, right? Because right now we're just putting out fires and we're getting paid to put out fires. So much the DNA of, of our work has come from me. We just said this on a, another podcast working with the, the Navy, but so much the DNA of understanding the realities of what people are asked to do with their bodies and that we can't have these perfect situations and scenarios. So how do we get 100%, 50%? That's really what I'm like. If we can only assume 50% of the thing, Let's make sure we're getting the full 50%. And even, you know, we made a thousand videos of a top-down setup for how most people set up when they pick something up. And then we started really looking at the Olympic lifting, being like, oh, they're all doing bottom-up setups. And I remember I asked you all, like, what's your number one problem? And you're like, guys tweak their backs getting the litter out of the helicopter. Yeah. And I remember being in the helicopter and being like, you can't stand up in this helicopter. And there was like, no. And we had to show people how to organize the best of their ability to get into the most robust positions from a full weird squat grabbing a litter. And, and just those ideas 
of saying, you know, what can we control? How do we optimize for the best positions in the worst positions? That really, those were such important lessons for me, even though, you know, you thought I was there for you. I was learning a lot at the same time, but I mean, it really was, you guys didn't have barbells. You had just gotten like some early stuff and guys were just thinking differently about it. Yeah. Right. And it's not so much, how do you lift in that awkward situation, but how do you set your back up? you know, with what you're doing in the gym or what you're doing in your daily routine. Right. Right. Because I don't have to tell you, but just like lifting the litter doesn't cause a problem. It exposes the problem. That's right. I think I got that from you, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) TM. Plagiarizing real time. Yeah. You touched on this a little bit, and this may be a podcast in and of itself, but do you think the sort of approach to medicine being reactionary, do you think that that is starting to change from a philosophical standpoint. I mean, it's so ingrained in how our current medical system is set up. And if so, in what ways is it changing? Who's changing it? You know, is it still just 0.01% of physicians like you and, you know, some other sort of forward thinking physicians that are thinking this way? Like, are you still in the extreme minority? Or do you think there's starting to be a bit of a change in philosophy and, you know, maybe starting to rethink how we're doing this thing that is our medical system? Short answer, yes. I think I'm still probably a, a 1%, but not a 0.1%, right? So there's optimism there. I think I see glimpses into the future that are promising. I tend to be an optimist. I feel like if after trying everything else, we will do what's right. I think if we give people the opportunity and the information, they will make the right choices. And then I read something about bed rot, and I'm, I'm not so sure I have the optimism anymore. The it's fair bed enough. rot. Like so, that's an actual thing that goes against everything that anyway. Oh, the kids. That sounds terrible. The okay, kids. so if my timeline is correct, you started your current role at the VA like five minutes before the COVID pandemic hit. Am I right on that? No, no. It was more than five. It was at least 15. No, I had settled in. Let me come back to that, but just I wanted to finish. Oh, on- sorry. Totally interrupted you. My optimism for uh, healthcare. So I think, like I said, the VA is a good model. I think if we can dial that in, like the capitated system where people are paid per patient and not per service, I think that helps with the motivation because unfortunately, you know, things are often motivated by money. And the VA is doing a lot of things in that sense, like trying to be proactive. And there are physicians, there are certainly physicians that are out there that are doing that. I know Julie Boucher is one of those forward-thinking physicians. I've got a a buddy of mine who's running a men's health clinic here in Tucson, who was actually my PJ teammate on the rescue mission, which is a funny story. Yeah, he was a trained cardiothoracic surgeon and saw all of the reactionary stuff. And he's like, I'm gonna skip all of this stuff and I'm gonna try and get people before they need to have their valves replaced or before they need their bypass graft. So he's aggressively treating cholesterol. He's aggressively treating things before they become problems. And I think that's really where we need to go. It's just building the model that gets us there. And I think when I become Surgeon General, that may be something I tackle. Yes. Is that an ambition? No, it's more of a joke. Because <laughs> I'm not even sure what the Surgeon General does other than has a yeah. cool hat. Cool title. Well, cool yeah. title. Chasing yeah. cool hats has gotten you into trouble. So I know. You know. I hear you. 
it sounded like, yeah, I mean, you you sort of took over again. I don't have the timeline perfectly right in my head, but I mean, you obviously were running this huge organization during the middle of a, you know, head of worldwide, the art department. Yeah, head of the art, you know, and and again, I think that this could be an entire podcast in and of itself, but maybe, you know, give us a little Reader's Digest version of what was that like for you on the ground? Yeah, it was really interesting and it really tested my leadership skills, you know, because clearly I'm not one to shy away from challenges. And I looked at COVID as a challenge and I was like, yeah, this is go time. Let's do what we can. Let's help people, right? We're the emergency department. Let's protect ourselves, but let's get in there and do stuff. And and I charged up that hill and I realized that I was kind of up there by myself, you know, and that I had left some people behind because some people were a little more apprehensive than I was. And that was good for me personally, just to realize that not everybody's coming from the same perspective. But I think COVID was challenging in a number of ways. And it was trying to keep people safe and being able to adjust on the fly. And really, those are two things that kind of my training has helped me with. But things were not moving quickly. And so in the emergency department, we tend to jump in and do what we can based on the information we have, right? And then adjust as things come in. And and I think what COVID really exposed is that we weren't getting those updates and we were not able to flex real time when data changed and when we got more knowledge about stuff. So we were lagging. And this is America in general or healthcare in general dealing with COVID. As things changed, I felt like we weren't quite as flexible as we could have been. But really, the takeaway message that I got from COVID is don't be fat and unhealthy, right? (laughs) Like, talk about preventing fires. Like, now that we were a couple of years with some data, we can see, we can dissect it and backtrack and see who really was the vulnerable with COVID. And those are people that were overweight and underlying medical conditions, So it's super interesting you say that because I think that that started to become obvious pretty early on. And I don't know if it was how the media handled it or because it was an out out of an abundance of sensitivity for certain groups. But it's interesting because nobody really did or does talk about that, at least in public settings. You know, and and I was always so shocked. I mean, I think there were always a few small voices, but, you know. Maybe we were too close to the fire. Yeah, but if you just didn't looked in, you know, in sort of the broader mainstream media, it was like, well, people almost felt like they couldn't say that more people who were overweight and unhealthy were the ones dying. They they felt like they couldn't say that because it would offend people or was somehow too late too late. I don't know, but I did think and do still think it's a very weird thing. I mean, it's that you've even said it out loud is unusual, I think. Yeah. Why do you think that is? What was... I I don't know. (laughs) I have thoughts, but they're not helpful. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Ozempic and ivermectin, that's really the great stack. (laughs) I don't know. Like, we had data pretty early on it, and the things that were being done, there's no logical explanation to me for it, right? As gym owners, you know, you guys got shut down. Like you were part of the solution yeah. and your business was shut down because it was non-essential. Like, yeah. I don't know anything that would have been more essential than a place where you can go. Like yeah, that. that really did. That slayed us on a like deep and existential level. I'll tell you. You know, I was like, well, I'm at Costco right now. 
Yeah. With a billion right. people. Urban right. Outfitters. Buying huge bags of Doritos and that's essential. But my gym, which is, you know, large and aerated with garage doors is not essential. You know, with some of the healthiest people in the community. It was hard for me to square that. Yeah, it was really hard for me to square that. We learned that, you know, and also that people need community. That's, you yeah. Know, and that when we, people did not do well when we pulled them out of their, you know, their friendships, groups, and their coping strategies groups. I mean, I think what's interesting is to sum up a little bit of what you're, I think you're both saying is I haven't necessarily connected the dots on this experiment we ran, mm-hmm. you know, that was thrust upon us and looking at the interventions downstream of that. You know, now we're just back on the phones, back on the alcohol, back on the whatever it is. The, the yeah, self-soothe. yeah. Like you'd think there'd just be some like national push towards saying, okay, like we got the data in from a pretty large yeah. experiment that, you we know. lost a lot of people. We yeah, we lost a lot of people. And, you know, that was a horrible thing for families and communities. And like, hello, like we need to focus a lot more attention on this particular thing, which is, you know, people's actual health and you know, rethinking our medical system so it's not just reactionary and, you know, it's deep, but it just seems like we went back to like, okay, well, let's just have yeah. everybody doing their thing. I call it a teachable moment, right? Like we have a huge teachable moment right now and we're squandering it. Again, back to that Surgeon General thing. Like, like are we not going to learn any lessons from this? It's tough. It's tough from the top down. You know, I think that's one of the things I recognize, you know, standing in front of the senior army medical leadership one time that, Trying to change a tanker mid-drive is it takes a long time to make change. That it's it's a lot easier going and working with a unit, seeing just how the Air Force and the Parascue, for example, went out and hired incredible coaches. I'm talking about like Justin Schwind, who is just a genius, you know, running the high performance program there, just being able to act nimbly at a community level. And that's really what, you know, each squadron is a community level mm-hmm. versus acting at a national level. It's just much harder, even a global level. And it's why I think Juliet and I, one of the reasons I think with Built to Move, we really looked at, hey, this trillion dollar experiment we've been running in fitness hasn't served our communities. In fact, it's failed us. And we maybe need focusing on the wrong level of, of organizational change. And that we've really felt like the household the dyad, the people who live together, that was really the only functional unit that mattered, the team, you know, at that level. Fact. Fact. Josh. So I do have a couple other questions. I mean, obviously COVID must have been a huge part of your experience in the ER in recent years, but what else are you seeing? Are you seeing trends, changes, anything sort of big about what's going on with people's health writ large as you see it in the ER? And then I do have one more other specific question, but I'll let you take that. We just don't have heads of ER departments on our podcast for often. So we yeah. Wanna, yeah. What's going on what in there? Seeing? Well, lucky for me, people are still doing stupid things. So I have some pretty good job security. You know, like, <laughs> People are still riding motorcycles and uh, juggling chainsaws. Anyway, <laughs> in the VA, right, I see a lot of downstream effects, like even more than when I'm working at the trauma center at the university. Is it like just like KAD, things like that, like ketoacidosis, like you're just seeing that people are mismanaging their health? Is that what? Right. It's a lot of it, right? And they come to us. So we're kind of a social safety net. I love that about emergency medicine. Like we'll see anybody for anything. And sometimes that gets abused, but we're definitely the social safety net of the community. And I think, you know, we try and fight that. And I think our corporate leaders try and fight that. But when you don't have anything else, that's the place you go. And I love the fact that I never have to 
check insurance or, you know, are you qualified for that? Like in my ED, I'm treating you. I don't care. But yeah, just the effects of the, of the long-term abuse that we do to ourselves. And I think our generation is probably the first ones that will really start turning it around. But I see a lot of the older folks that have smoked and, you know, not had the best diets and the diabetes. But I think it's our generation that's going to turn it around. And then our kids that are going to be the mutants that I'm curious to see, you know, I know your girls are a number of years ahead of ours, but like what this generation is going to turn out to be, you know, with all of the information and all of the stuff they know about health and durability, how, how that's going to work out. Whatever. We invented Doritos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm with you. I feel, TV I feel dinners like that. and Dorito, like all of that stuff. And we, we got rid of the family garden and you know, that was, that's not us. That's our parents. That's right. Yeah. That's right. right. It happened to us. Dorito. Yeah. I feel like Doritos happened to me. Is that fair, Lisa? Yeah. I mean, we're actually going to have Dan Butner, the author of the Blue Zones. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he's going to be on the podcast. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time sort of thinking about what it is about those, you know, thinking and learning from him about what it is those communities all do to, you know, produce a ton of centenarians. Right. And of course, it's yeah. like the, all the it's all the most basic stuff, including and maybe most prime, like strong human connection and connection with your immediate family. And so, you know, hopefully our kids will our kids will start to get on that program a little bit and change some things. Josh, besides being bit by a snake or cutting my arm off to come see you, are you on the socials? Can people follow you if they uh, want to know more about your your adventures? Yeah, if you like what you're hearing, I'm on LinkedIn. If you don't like what you're hearing, I'm on Twitter as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait, Kelly was trying to get to the end, though. I can't let you leave without one more question. Oh, sorry. And right. I'm sorry, but Kelly and I are obsessed with Ozempic and all Ozempic-y things. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to get your thoughts and opinions on it. So as an ER doc, I don't really have a lot of interaction with it. I just, uh, it just feels like the latest shortcut, like just do the work. Yeah. A yeah. really powerful tool for people who need a yeah, really sick. Like yeah. We can get people, I think if we can get people to lose 25% of their weight, you're morbidly obese, decrease your fatty liver. That's a really first step intervention that, you know, maybe is better than gastric bypass, you know? Yeah. 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 Interesting. Right. We, just, we had seen some friends taking, let's just say, Mexican off-brand Ozempic and not having, working in ERs and seeing people who have had negative downstream consequences from taking a suspect generic Ozempic. Yeah. So as with anything, it has a purpose. I think it has moved beyond its purpose. And yeah. I think the people that need it are now having a difficult time getting it. That's right. But it absolutely can help. But I think the majority, again, of people using it should probably just do the work. <laughs> Well, I feel like we did not, we may have to bring you back for a Josh Apple part two, because I feel like there were a lot of subjects we didn't get to cover, like raising kids and standing desks in schools and right. more on longevity and durability yeah. and fermented, uh, uh, tea. fermented, fermented tea. tea. I mean, you know, there's a lot that we didn't have a chance to cover in this episode. So I hope, I hope maybe sometime later this year, we can bring you back for Josh Apple talks to the Starettes part two. That would be awesome. I do want to pitch my idea. I think it could be epic. Hose flavored water, right? A little yes, packet. Yeah, like 1970 summer. Yeah, right? Like you pour the packet yes. in and then you drink the water and it tastes like a hose, like a rubber hose. Yes. Wow. That is a key part of creating a 1970 <laughs> summer for your kids, which I am a fan of. 
It would be a niche market, of course, but you know. It comes in a three pack with chia, a chia pet. Yeah, but there's also needs to be like a tang. You have to have a tang flavored, like it's a three pack with a tang flavored. Um, You're not wrong. That's kind of genius. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking we could put, make a an attachment to your water bottles that was actually like the end of a hose. So you get that metal <laughs> taste with the well, and, and then somehow some kind of technology so that there's like four different temperatures that hit your mouth because right. like, you know, the first part of the hose has been in the sun, so, so that hot. water's kind of warm, and then it starts getting colder, wow. right? Like a, you know. Me too. Yeah. That's yeah, I'm, I, I'm so with you. You know, you and I right. have been obviously having the same I house. had heat, not stroke. <laughs> like, I had some pre-sunstroke kind of exposure problems in Germany as a kid, and I remember being, like, on the clay tennis ports. Like, I probably hadn't drink it, and, like, I'm drinking from that orange hose that they're using to spray down mm-hmm. the tennis courts. <laughs> <laughs> and like feeling like I'm going to pass out and I'm kind of nauseous and then, then hitting that full warm hose. Well, so you guys have positive associations running around. <laughs> I'm like, I really still, I still had to ride my bike home. And I remember even pulling under a tree and like passing out. Yeah. But I mean, everyone's doing all this formal, like resilience training now. And I think, yeah, man, right? if we just like locked our kids outside, like made them stay outside for 12 hours in the summer and, and we're like, drink from the hose, forage for food. Get good luck to you. Yeah, you know, it. we wouldn't, we wouldn't need so much, res- you know, resilience training. Josh, tell us where you are. Can we follow you? LinkedIn. And, and your hose Twitter. water. Yeah. LinkedIn. I think I'm just Josh Apple. I think I have, may have seven followers. So anybody. Perfect. Hopefully this podcast will, will get you up to like 12. Not really big on the socials, but uh, I'm here for you guys whenever. From dad girl to dad girl, thank you so much for uh, girl dad, not dad girl, girl dad to girl dad. Thanks so much for joining us, man. It's always appreciate your friendship and, and your candor and your your view on this. And thanks for sharing your experience with our uh, TRS family. Awesome. Love you guys. We'll see you. Thanks, Josh. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it.